0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We have a special Thanksgiving week episode for you this week. We will have our usual format but do things a little bit differently. So we'll have a news roundup up front in which we'll talk about two Wi-Fi related stories. So Google Wi-Fi finally went on sale this week and Uh, Google did a post about how much better it is than two of the competitors. There don't seem to be any third-party reviews yet, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Secondly, we'll talk about a Bloomberg report that Apple is discontinuing its airport line of Wi-Fi routers. So uh, interesting to see those two stories coming pretty much the same time. And then the third News Roundup story will be uh, Instagram's announcement of uh, live video and also disappearing photographs. Um, So that'll be our News Roundup. And then we'll move on to our question of the week. And this week it's my turn to do that. And uh, the question we're going to be answering is, what is the state of cord cutting in the US? So we'll talk about the pay TV market and what's happening there with cord cutting and so on. And then our third segment, uh, we'll, we'll acknowledge the fact that it's Thanksgiving this week in the US. And uh, we'll talk about some of the things, some of the technology things that we're grateful for. So that will be uh, our third segment. And then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick in which Aaron has a, re- a movie recommendation for us. So that'll be the agenda for today, we'll kick off with a news roundup. First off, this story about Google Wi-Fi. This was a somewhat unusual situation where Google kind of released a self-review here. They did, in fairness, they did have a third-party company do some testing on their behalf of, of the Google Wi-Fi, I think they tested against the uh, Eero router and then the Luma router as well, and they uh, put one of each in, in the same spot in a house, or I don't know if it was an actual house or if it was a, uh, a sort of a model home somewhere, but uh, they put them in several places and then measured throughput and uh, suggested that the Google Wi-Fi speeds were much stronger. Uh, Aaron, did you read this and kind of did you have any thoughts about it? Well, I
1: can see the rationale behind doing this, if only because this is getting out pretty late, the Google router, in terms of the holiday shopping season. Mm-hmm. And I can see why they would feel anxiety about, you know, people are starting to make these purchasing decisions now. And if they couldn't get review units out in a timely way, but it's still going to be available for purchase, I think this is just a way to get anybody who's looking to upgrade or, or put in a new Wi-Fi system, this is a way for them to take Google more seriously as they're making their decisions.
0: Right. Yeah, it makes sense. One of the things that I found interesting about it was just that um, in at least one of the rooms in their in their home that they were testing in, the speeds on all three routers, including the Google one, were under 100 megabits a second. And and to me, it kind of reinforced a point that I I made a couple of years ago when I was briefly a Google Fiber customer, which is that gigabit fiber is all very well, but if you're using Wi-Fi within the home, and especially if your devices are at any distance from the router there's a good chance that you're gonna be getting a tiny fraction of that that gigabit uh, per second speed. So I think the highest they got in one of these rooms was 80 something even on the Google one and then it was less on the other two. Uh, and it matched up with you know my experience on Google Fiber where the Google Fiber router itself didn't even reach my office at the time and, and my own more powerful wireless router gave me maybe 30, 40 megabits per second, which is you know, about the sort of standard cable broadband speed in many places. So I don't know. You're a Google Fiber customer right now, so what do you see with this? Does that sort of match up with your experience at home as well? Oh,
1: sure. I mean, in our case, it's having the, the television across the house from where the Google Fiber connection right. comes in. You know, luckily, streaming video works just fine over Wi-Fi, but when you're on that end of the house, if I'm doing any... If I'm it really, if I'm doing any file transfers like for work, um, I take my computer into our office where the connection comes in, and I and I plug in directly. You the yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's for the reason you said. I I know eight hundred two eleven AC is supposed to make up for a lot of that deficiency, but but uh, you know that's a slow process of sort of getting every, getting everything in your house up to where it belongs as far as Wi-Fi standards are concerned. It's nothing right. you can do all at once without spending way too much money for a very small convenience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's move on to the Apple uh, story. And this is a Bloomberg report, so it's not being confirmed by Apple, that. Um, seems to be well-sourced and, and it's Mark German and the team there that generally has a good track record in this stuff. And certainly the, the a- airport routers at Apple haven't been updated for several years now, whereas in the past they were updated fairly frequently. So all this has been sort of pointing in the direction of either slowing investment or a pullback from this space. And we obviously have the recent announcement of these LG monitors, which are taking the place of what used to be Apple-made monitors. So feels like another area where Apple is pulling back from doing first-party stuff and perhaps going to be allowing third parties to fill the gap. What's always interesting to me in this industry is when you see two companies, especially two of the biggest companies, moving in opposite directions in a space. So you have Google on the one hand, which has never been in this space, that is finally getting into it with the first party uh, hardware products after a year of playing around with some partnerships. And you get Apple, which has been in this space for years and years now, getting out. So they're literally moving in opposite directions. And that's always interesting to me. It, it suggests something about how they both see the market and also suggests something about their underlying strategies and, and why they might be responding differently to this opportunity right now. Any thoughts well, on you,
1: Aaron? Well, Google is still very new in the hardware manufacturing thing. And I think they're more willing to try out different products and, and kind of you know, extend their manufacturing portfolio. Um, whereas Apple, you know, I, I, anytime they've got a product that hasn't been refreshed in a few years, you know, I, I think it's, it's not reasonable to assume that they're going to stick with it or, 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 or come back around to it. In fact, uh, you know, sorry Mac Pro fans, but mm. <laughs> I don't know. That one, I guess, probably has more of a chance of getting resurrected than anything else. But, you know, I, I think the more interesting implications of this have to do with Apple's play in the smart home. Yeah, there, there, are kind of two perspectives, and I and and I know you were speculating a little bit about this on on Twitter yesterday, um, but the question is, is Apple got something on deck that's just not ready yet, and you know the reality is, is they haven't canceled this product. It's it's it, you know officially it's it's German reporting that they have internally, right. and so maybe they have so you can still buy these things from Apple online mm-hmm. the, the question is you know do they have something on deck that's not ready yet that's more of a smart home integration mm-hmm. or is apple just committed to the apple tv and iPads sitting around the house you know serving as the smart home hub right um and that remains to be seen i'm my guess is going to be more is that apple's leaning toward the latter strategy right that it's going to be you know these devices that they're already selling that um that you know that they are still very much alive for Apple it seems like they're more likely to be the platform for for you know smart home coordination
0: yeah it's interesting to me i, I i'm seeing more and more and we've talked about the smart home in some depth before but you know one of the things that we're seeing is a sort of service model which we've talked about but another thing is that you know i think a lot of smart home Vendors and service providers are starting to realize you really need a solid connection into the home And then you need really good management of the connectivity within the home too, to really Make this stuff work in an optimized way And so that's why this is interesting to me that Apple would be getting out of the wireless router business Just as you know the smart home and home kit specifically is starting to finally get to the point where it might be uh, You know able to really move and um, you know, in terms of market share, in terms of sales of, of compatible products and so on, you know, they, they put kind of the home stuff in sort of pride of place in the control center if you have it enabled uh, in the latest version of iOS. You know, there's a lot of stuff building up to that. And so it's an interesting time to get out of the router business, as you say, unless they're going to do something else in this space, and whether it's using the Apple TV as a hub. I've never been a big fan of the iPhone as the hub because iPhones leave the house, and if there's somebody at home who needs to control something, then having the only device that can control it not be present in the home anymore is a bit of a problem. And so, uh, you know, whether the Apple TV fills that role, whether there's some other piece of hardware that does that over time, I don't know, but there is that question. The other thing that's interesting with regard to uh, Apple and Wi-Fi and so on is AirPlay. Um, and you know, in, the, in the last version of iOS, I think it's just an iOS 10. I'm trying to remember exactly when the change happened, but certainly in iOS 10, uh, AirPlay has kind of been split into two. Um, so on the first control center panel, uh, you have AirPlay mirroring, which is the video side of AirPlay. And then you have to swipe across to the audio panel for uh, the other version of AirPlay, which is audio. And it's really in a list along with Bluetooth and other things now as well. And uh, in and of itself, there's no huge significance to that, although it obviously fits with Apple's focus on Bluetooth headphones and so on now too. Um, But it does make you wonder, you know, is Apple kind of emphasizing airplay for video and perhaps de-emphasizing airplay for audio and and falling back on Bluetooth and things like that? You know, right now I have an Airport Express hooked up to a stereo in my office, and that's how I play music in my office most of the time. Um, You know, without an Airport Express, you're not going to have sort of an Apple-supported way to do AirPlay uh, for audio. Uh, you've got the video aspect. You can play audio through an Apple TV, but either the TV has to be on or you have to have independent speakers. Um, there are third-party AirPlay speakers as well that are standalone, but um, you know, this is the equivalent of, say, the Chromecast audio device. You know that's airport express right now for apple that's kind of the closest thing they have it's not the ideal solution for that but it does make me wonder whether you know is apple going to make its own airplay speakers is it going to give up on airplay as an audio technology and, and focus on bluetooth instead is it going to build some small sort of chromecast audio type device to plug into third-party speakers and so on you know there's a whole bunch of questions that come out of this as well around airplay too
1: yeah, and I mean Bluetooth is not anywhere close to a perfect replacement of airplay either. Right. Just for range issues alone. Yeah. You yeah. Know. And so no, it'll be interesting to see where that goes.
0: Yeah. Okay, well let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is uh, Instagram. Um, you know, it's this is not the first time it's done something that Snapchat previously did, obviously with stories a few months ago. Um, which has been very successful for them um, as a sort of uh, clone of something that Snapchat had previously done. But disappearing photographs are part of this announcement, but so is live video. And live video is obviously something that's already uh, part of Twitter's value proposition. It's part of the core Facebook value proposition as well. This is a slightly different take on it. It seems to be a sort of person-to-person live video. Um, So it's not not a two-way video call, but it's sort of I share something with you live, uh, and it doesn't get stored in the way that, say, Facebook Live video or Periscope does. You know, this is either you, you see it live or it's gone. Um, so, the interesting differences there. But you see more and more of this sort of expansion of the Instagram feature set, in many cases, sort of replicating things that either competitors have done or uh, recreating things that Facebook's done within the core Facebook experience.
1: Yeah, you know, normally when, when uh, social media platforms are maturing like this, And adding features from other uh, competing platforms, I I roll my eyes at it because I just it feels it's not and it's not just the me too aspect of it, but also it, it you know there's there's sort of culture and community and and all sorts of other very human factors that make people use Snapchat versus Instagram versus Facebook you know versus whatever else. And, uh, and it's not like you can import all of that culture and community just by adding a feature that, that mimics a competitor. Um, that said, when, you know, when Instagram started adding the, the disappearing uh, photos and videos in a very Snapchat-like way across the top of your Instagram feed, um, I, I've, I've been surprised by how active people are in using that. And it, it, when I think of all the people I have in my Instagram feed, it's a tiny minority still that are actually using those features, but they're using Mm -hmm. it on a pretty consistent basis. The one that has been most interesting anecdotally is Alison Faulkner, who we had on the show. Yeah, And, you know, she, she uses Instagram for her business and Mm -hmm. uh, also uses Snapchat. And I've noticed the difference between what she does in Snapchat versus Instagram. Snapchat is still very much just throwaway, just fun, easy, lighthearted way to engage with, with her community. Whereas Instagram, even with the Snapchat-type features in Instagram, she still is a little more business-minded, a little more promotional. And so the culture hasn't changed Mm -hmm. right, in terms of the way she's using one app versus the other and what people are expecting. But these new features in Instagram have broadened the way she can communicate um, with the people who are following her there.
0: Yeah, no, it's been an interesting one for me too. There's definitely been a split between people who... Um, who I think, I think, and it's it's hard to read into it because I'm not connected to all of these people on Snapchat, but my sense is that the people that have been most active with Instagram stories are people that are familiar with Snapchat and use that regularly. So they're already kind of familiar yeah, with the format true. and have just kind of ported it over, if you like, to Instagram. Uh, there's one couple that I know uh, that now both of them have done accidental story posts, and, and one of them... It looked like it probably was him himself. The second one was very much a kid doing something on their behalf. Uh, and in both cases, the story just stayed up. And I don't know if they just didn't realize that, that it had happened or what. But uh, there are most users, I would say most people I follow on Instagram have never done a single story still. Uh, yeah. I've only done one or two myself. It's just not something I'm used to doing. And uh, But, yeah, it's interesting to see. So people who have used it on Snapchat tend to be the people who are using it most on Instagram and and those who I suspect aren't on snapchat are also not really using the feature on Instagram either so Reinforces my perception that this is mostly about saying hey there's certain activity you can only do on snapchat if we recreate it here People will do that here either instead or as well and so we recapture some of the sort of time spent in that way yeah all right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said, I'm answering the questions this week. And the question is, what is the state of cord cutting in the US? And this is off the back of some research that I do every quarter on, on pay TV subscribers and so on. And I typically write up a blog post as well. So we'll link to the post that I wrote this quarter about this, uh, which was fairly brief. Um, but it's something I've been following for quite a while now. And we've, we've talked about bits and pieces of this in the past. but I've never really kind of done a deep dive on cord cutting specifically, so we wanted to take the opportunity to do that today. So Aaron will be asking the questions, and I'll be doing my best to answer them.
1: So, yeah, and let's start with a, a question that just gives us the right context. Uh, you know, cord cutting implies that there are a bunch of pay TV subscribers to begin with. How, how many are there in the U.S., and, and kind of what's their makeup?
0: Yeah, so um, that's absolutely got to be the starting point for this conversation. Um, and I, I track a lot of this. So I have, uh, I think it's about 15, 16 of the largest pay TV providers in the US that are publicly traded um, so that they have to report their numbers every quarter. So I track those and, and gather the data on those and see what the trends show among those. And that's across cable providers, uh, telecoms operators like AT&T and Verizon and CenturyLink, uh, who provide TV services, and then satellite providers like Dish and DirecTV. Um, DirecTV, of course, now is owned by at and but still sort of reports separately within at and uh, when it comes to TV subscribers. So I collect those numbers every quarter, and that's the basis on which I do my regular sort of blog posts about cord cutting. Uh, but there are obviously professional measurement firms like Nielsen and so on out there as well that, that measure this kind of thing too. So I'll share some of what I've seen. The providers that I track... Um, had at the end of Q3 had about uh, 95 million pay TV subscribers in the US across cable, satellite, and telecoms operators. Um, Nielsen tracks, you know, th- the full universe. They have a different way of tracking it. They do surveys and that kind of thing. Um, and they haven't released their Q3 numbers yet. But at the end of Q2, uh, they had. Uh, just under 99 million uh, total pay tv subscribers across those same categories so they have a few million that i don't capture but that are part of tiny tiny uh, pay tv providers that you know when you add them all up together still account for a few million subs so just under 100 million is the simple answer in terms of how many pay tv subscribers there are across all those different categories so so that's kind of the starting point for this whole conversation
1: so core cutting means the number is changing talk to us how i mean obviously if- there are people getting rid of their pay TV service, but but there's obviously a lot more nuance to what's going on. So tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so the, the first thing to look at is, okay, what's happening to that number that I just mentioned? So it's around 100 million. As I say, it's a little less than that at this point, um, but it's also changing over time. And so that's worth sort of drilling into a little bit. And you know, my numbers suggest that uh, in the past year, um, there's been a reduction of about 800,000 uh, 800, 000, uh to a million uh, subscribers uh, leaving according to those kind of official pay TV subscriber numbers. It's a bit more complicated than that because uh, Dish owns Sling TV, which is one of these over-the-top television services, and they include that in their pay TV subscriber number. And so if you strip out uh, the the growth that comes from that, because that's not really traditional pay TV uh, then you get a much bigger decline. You get a decline of about one and a half million or even a little bit more uh, year on year in that total number of pay TV subscribers. So um, that's you know one number to think about. And if you look at the Nielsen numbers on average year on year, they're seeing about the same magnitude. So about a million and a half uh, subscribers uh, lost from those pay TV tallies that these companies report. And so uh, that's accelerated quite a bit. And if you go back far enough um And you don't have to go back that far. Um, But if you go back, say, to, um, uh, let me just check here, we go back to sort of 2014, the number was actually still growing. So there were more pay TV subscribers, you know, year on year than there had been the year before. Um, And it was somewhere around the beginning of 2015 that the trend finally went uh, negative so you went from having year-on-year growth in pay tv subscribers to having negative growth and that the the scale of that negative that shrinkage if you like has been increasing very consistently since then there was only one quarter where uh, the number was slightly less than it had been the quarter before but basically you see increasing numbers of uh, losses of pay tv subscribers year-on-year every quarter Uh, and that's been going on for as I say about a year and a half at this point since the beginning of last year And as I say, at this point, we're at about 800,000 year on year. If you don't worry about the Sling stuff, if you include the Sling subscribers, you're at about a million and a half uh, year on year. So that's kind of what's happening to the total number of pay TV subscribers. Um, Now, that's still not kind of capturing the whole picture because, of course, the population of the US isn't static either. And so um, what you really need to think about is what's the total number of households And then how does that number compare to that and if you do that then the the trend actually becomes a bit more dramatic because uh, household growth is uh, happening at a rate of about a million and a half a year roughly and it kind of fluctuates quite a bit but over the last um, sort of five years or so the number of households in the US has gone up by about 5 million so about a million a year on average Uh, And yet, as I say, over the last year and a half, the number of pay TV subscribers has actually been going down. So these two numbers are going in opposite directions. So the penetration of the base has gone from about uh, 84 percent of uh, U.S. households are captured by one of the pay TV subscriber, uh, pay TV companies that I've tracked to being about 80 percent. So from 84 down to 80, if you include all the ones that Nielsen includes, it's gone from about uh, 90 percent down to about 83 percent. So. Has been the significant reduction in the penetration of pay tv uh subscribership over that period
1: so that's an interesting figure because it basically says that although these companies have a growing customer base they a potential customer base they've still been shrinking as a product it, it, i mean it seems like there have to be demographics involved here new household formation implies younger potential subscribers that are never bothering to sign up for For cable or satellite. Is that I mean, is that an accurate impression? Is it younger people that are that are leaving these services behind?
0: Yeah, there. So there's two things going on. There's cord cutting, which is kind of what we said was going to be our focus today. But we'll we'll talk about more than that, too. So there's cord cutting, which is people who did have a pay TV subscription and have, have at some point canceled it and not bothered. Uh, to subscribe again. So there's people who leave the base, but then to your point, there are you know kids coming out of college, getting their first apartment or whatever, and choosing not to get one in the first place. So choosing not to sign up for pay TV, probably just getting a broadband connection, then watching everything over the top, or perhaps getting a, an antenna um, and, and watching digital broadcast television instead. Uh, and so those are sometimes colloquially called cord nevers. So you've got the cord cutters and the cord nevers. Uh, And so between them, that's what accounts for that kind of shrinking penetration among the base. Some of it is people leaving the pay TV base. And and as we said, that's somewhere around a million and a half a year that are doing that. But there's probably a a comparable number uh, that are, you know, were potential new pay TV customers and simply haven't become them um, because they just never signed up for pay TV in the first place. So it's really the combination of those two things, that's causing this sort of reduction in penetration over time.
1: got cord cutters and cord nevers does that does that pretty much sum up the problem that that pay tv uh providers are are facing or is there more to that
0: well there's a bit more to it so the third term that's worth talking about is cord shavers Um, and that sounds really odd uh as if cord nevers didn't sound odd enough in the first place but but cord shavers Um, is a phenomenon that refers to the fact that many people are trying to trim the size of the pay tv package that they take so they remain pay tv subscribers but they are switching to packages or switching to services that allow them to subscribe to far fewer channels Um, and that's important because uh, the revenue you're going to generate from a subscriber like that is going to be far less than you would have done in the past from a you know a full Uh, bundle. Um, And so, you know, if you're a pay TV provider, you're suddenly seeing less revenue come from the same subscriber because they're subscribing to far fewer channels. But if you are a content provider, if you're the owner of a a cable network, for example, like ESPN, so Disney, for example, uh, you know, you may see more rapid declines in the number of subscribers that you have to your channels than... Uh, there is cord cutting going on because you're losing the cord cutters, you're losing the cord nevers, and to some extent you may be losing subscribers to these cord shavers as well that also decide that they actually don't really need those channels anymore and decide to subscribe to a smaller bundle of channels. Uh, And so, uh, you know, for both the pay TV providers and uh, for the uh, content providers, these trends are all problematic in one way or another. Um, And some of them have kind of embraced this. So, you know, Verizon, for example, Uh, made a a somewhat risky choice uh, about a year and a half ago now, I think it was, to say, you know, we think customers want these smaller bundles. Uh, We've traditionally been forced to provide only big bundles and include all these expensive sports channels in those bundles we don't want to do that anymore, we're going to offer something called custom TV where you get much more choice over which channels you take. And that was basically in breach of their contract with companies like Disney that require them to uh, place certain channels into the most basic packages they provide. And so they were actually sued by by Disney over that. Um, but they've actually had a lot of customers sign up for it and a large chunk of their new customers are actually signing up for these much smaller bundles. Uh, You've seen Dish launch Sling TV which is an over-the-top version so it's not a classic sort of pay TV service but that's also a much smaller bundle Uh, and AT&T and DirecTV are about to launch next week a service called DirecTV Now um, which will be again an over-the-top thing that you can watch on your Apple TV, on your iPhone, your iPad, your Amazon Fire TV devices and so on. Uh, that will again offer 100 channels. And to anybody from outside the U.S., 100 channels probably sounds like an awful lot, but that's a fraction of the number of channels that uh, most American households get access to through through pay TV. So, um, you know, there, there is this sort of embrace of this by at least some of the providers. Um, you know, the average number, Nielsen says, of channels available to uh, the U.S. pay TV household is 205. Um, of those, the average household watches uh, about Uh, 20 Uh, so roughly 10 percent of the channels that people get uh, do they actually watch and it's different 20 for each subscriber so it's not the same 20 channels but it's this that's really driving this push towards skinnier bundles and towards cord shaving is the fact that people get 200 channels they watch 20 of them they really rather only pay for the 20 that they receive and so that's an ongoing trend that's really going to continue to affect the, uh, the pay TV companies. One thing that you know Disney, among others, has been very sure about in the past and has sounded slightly less sure about recently is that actually live TV is the one thing that's going to keep people on these packages, that every household has somebody who watches live sports uh, and that that's going to keep live TV alive and that in turn is going to keep the pay TV big bundle alive. Uh, and what we've seen over the last couple of months during the uh, National Football League season here in the US with American football Uh, is that viewership is way down over last year and we saw the same thing to some extent in the summertime with the olympics that that was way down in terms of live and linear viewing of olympic coverage Uh, and so a lot of these things that have traditionally been sort of the bulwark or the firewall or whatever you want to call it that have kept live tv and pay tv alive are now starting to fragment and fall apart Um, and so they're calling into question this whole theory about how live sports was roughly immune to all this stuff and in fact it may not be as immune as it seemed and uh, Disney's latest results certainly showed some subscriber declines, and Nielsen reported some very significant subscriber declines in November uh, for the ESPN channels. And uh, you know, Disney pushed back against that, but Nielsen went back and looked at their numbers again and said, no, no, we're very confident of this. And part of this is they're not capturing the, these over-the-top services like Sling and Sony View and so on. Uh, but part of it is just cord-shaving, people taking ESPN channels out of a bundle as they trade down to a smaller bundle, so you know these are all trends that are going to be ongoing. And again, if you're a pay TV provider or a content provider, you know these things are all, all bad news over the long term. It's going to be very hard to, to compete with all that.
1: When television became widespread, it it obviously put a huge hit on radio, um, and but radio didn't disappear. It just sort of settled into a new equilibrium with a much smaller market size. I, I, are we are we going to see the same thing with TV as a result of the internet or do you think uh, or, or do you think it's just a matter of kind of reconfiguring the way television is delivered and, and 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 things might start to grow again once the providers figure out how to do this
0: yeah it's interesting I, I, I just wrote a column hasn't uh, been published yet but wrote a column for a Variety about Sirius XM and how well they're doing and that's obviously in that radio space that we were just talking about you know they're bucking all these big trends that you see in content so it's a pay tv it's live Um, You know, there is no sort of video on demand aspect, really, for SiriusXM. You either listen to it while it's happening or you've missed it. And yet they're growing subscribers. You know, they're they're charging lots of money for it. Um, You know, they're very profitable. Their content costs are actually falling as a percentage of their revenue. So, you know, there are places even within today's landscape where you can do very well in in what seems to be a broadly declining industry. So I've no doubt there will be some providers that that do as well as SiriusXM has in the radio space, in the TV space as well. Um, but you know, those secular trends are pretty significant and I think there's going to be a lot of thinning out over the next few years, uh, while that happens, you know, there is increasing recognition by the various players in the traditional TV industry that something does need to change. And so, as I say, you've got Verizon, Dish, DirecTV, all now investing in, uh, sort of skinnier bundles and to some extent over the top type offerings and so on. So they are responding to this. Um, but it's also sort of the new normal. They recognize things aren't going to be as they have been in the past and they need to adapt and adjust. And so I think you will see a period where things come down dramatically. Part of this, of course, is caused by uh, other over-the-top type digital subscription offerings. So we haven't talked about Netflix or Hulu or any of those guys yet, but it's worth talking about them they're part of this picture too and the question is as the traditional tv companies feel more threatened by them do they pull content back from those channels and does that affect the ability of say netflix to continue to grow its subscribership and clearly netflix is investing in its own original content as a way to hedge against that threat but um you know there's lots of interesting dynamics here where a lot of the players that are providing content to these over-the-top players are the same ones that are in traditional TV. And so they have some big choices to make as far as do they continue to support some of those things? Do they try to bring it back in-house, develop their own digital offerings as a potential replacement for revenue lost to cord cutting and cord shaving? Um, So there's a really complex set of dynamics. I think it's not yet clear really how that's all going to shake out. Certainly revenue from traditional TV is going to come down over the next few years. The question is just is there other stuff that helps to make up for it? And do we see st- stabilization at some point? Or does this trend just continue to accelerate as it seems to be so far? And I'm not quite ready to call that yet. I think it's there's so many moving parts and so many things that are, that are unpredictable still at this point that I don't know exactly how far down this is going to go. But certainly for now, it's not showing any signs of stopping.
1: Well, that's really fascinating. Thanks for the, for the review of that. It'll be interesting to watch the numbers over the next year or two.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Aaron, for asking the questions as well. Uh, again, we'll link to the, the piece that I wrote this quarter on cord cutting on the Beyond Devices blog so that you can have that to refer to and see some of the numbers that I was talking through. Well, let's move on to our third segment. And again, in recognition of the fact that in the U.S., at least this week, it's Thanksgiving. Um, and there's something of a tradition, at least uh, around our dinner table at Thanksgiving, of sort of expressing what we're thankful for. Uh, we thought it might be fun to do a segment here talking about the some of the technology that we're thankful for and some of this will be specific products and some of it will be just sort of trends and more general categories of technology that that we're grateful for so uh, we'll kind of alternate here Aaron will talk about something that he's grateful for and then I'll I'll share something I am and we'll go back a couple of times on that and, and and that will be our third segment here so Aaron why don't you kick things off with something that you're some sort of technology that you're grateful for
1: sure well this one is Mostly platform agnostic. I'm I'm really grateful for photo discoverability. This year has seen a substantial bump in the quality of that. Um, you know, when we went f- from from film to digital, and I mean, we as a you know, as as as, as tech customers, when we went from when we went to digital. The problem was digital was so easy that you could just take all these pictures and it just fills up your photo libraries really fast. Um, and, and the truth is, I think people just, uh, really struggled with how to make those best photos useful and interesting and discoverable. Um, and it used to be a lot of work to have to try to find a, a particular photo or to just go back and do a walk through memory lane in a way that wasn't ever very focused. And I think this year with what Apple and Google have both accomplished in terms of applying machine learning to, to our photo libraries has been awesome. And it, in fact, I've noticed a change in my household. My kids now have been a, a lot more frequently looking back through old photos, whether it's on the computer or on an iPad or on an Apple TV. They've, they've been going back, and it has everything to do with these photos being more discoverable, more accessible, easier to find like a date range. It's easier to find a particular person you're looking for pictures of. The boys love to you know, look at pictures of themselves and their babies, for example, and it's easier for mm-hmm. them to do that now. Than it ever has been before, and so it it feels like I've got this new exciting thing, this huge photo library that we've had forever, and I've always tried to protect very diligently from data loss, and now all of a sudden it just feels a lot richer. So that's one of the things I'm grateful for.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now we've had a very similar experience recently. We've been, I've invested fairly heavily into getting all our photos into Google Photos, and I found that to be really. A useful way to have both you know another copy of this all as a backup but also just the searchability is great like you attach names to faces and then suddenly you can search by faces you can search by date so you know we're able to say okay you know, we've noticed recently that our, our baby looks a lot like one of his sisters when she was the same age. And so you can kind of say, well, go back to this month and year when she would have been the same age as he is now. And suddenly you're like, wow, you know, they do look a lot alike. You know, so that was fun. And then we've had family here this week in preparation for the holiday. And uh, on Sunday night, I guess it was, we were, again, looking through Google Photos and looking at pictures of their kids that are in pictures that we've taken. And you know, how have they changed over year, over the years and noticing who's lost hair and all the rest of it. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great way that's kind of made, you know, these huge libraries that we have that are sort of the equivalent of the boxes in the attic, you know, they've turned those into something that you can actually see and enjoy again. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that same thing as well. Um, m- my first one that I wanted to talk about was um, this uh, last year. In fact, I think it was in the summer, Uh, we went on a road trip as a family so we drove my oldest daughter and i drove back to the east coast and then uh, the rest of the family flew out and we drove back across the country together and spent you know a good week or so in the car and one of the things i was really grateful for was the ability on a road trip like that to use technology to enhance the experience in all kinds of ways you know that that would have been an extremely different trip 20 years ago um in all kinds of ways so on the way out we listened to Uh, audio books in the car, um, you know, through my phone, Um, you know, so it was great to have that, um, you know, to be able to sort of stop and start it whenever we wanted to, to skip things, to go back, you know, but on the way back across the country with the whole family, you know, kids were watching iPads and watching movies and TV shows and that kind of thing in the back of the car, you know, we booked most of the places that we stayed during the trip on my phone, so as we were you know getting ready to move on to the next city that we were going to visit I'd pull up uh, you know hotels.com or whatever on my phone and find a place for us to stay and then we'd look up you know what else was going to be interesting along the route obviously we navigated with technology the whole way just fascinating to me to see how you know a whole road trip like that could be enabled and totally transformed by technology it made the time in the car more interesting it made it allowed us to visit more interesting places and allowed us to find places to stay it allowed us to sort of change our plans on the fly it allowed us to actually get to everywhere and find the places that we were looking for you know it's it's really amazing the extent to which A trip like that is different because of technology. And, you know, that's certainly true for a big road trip like that. But many of those things absolutely apply for more everyday stuff that we do, you know, whether it's navigation, whether it's, you know, when I'm finding a place to stay when I travel for business, for example, whether it's, you know, planning shorter trips as a family, whether it's entertaining our kids in the car. You know, so many aspects of that 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 really um, technology has changed for the better, at least in our family.
1: Uh, I can't tell you how many times Kate, my wife and I have had the exact same conversation, just like, man, can you imagine, like, how much harder this would be <laughs> if it was – right. I don't know how my yeah. parents did it. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Well, I'll go next. I, I, this one is a specific app that I'm really grateful for. I have a love-hate relationship, but mostly hate relationship with email. And an app I've been using this year, on my iPhone and iPad, has made a huge difference, and it's Spark, S-P-A-R-K. It's an email client that uh, changes some of the things about the way email works that I really appreciate. I, it, one of my frustrations with email, for example, is that it's always felt like a fire hose that you either switch on or switch off, and uh, especially when it comes to notifications. Spark has a really intelligent, well-designed notification, smart notifications feature, so you're only getting notifications pushed to you that are actually important. And I've noticed it's it's really reliable. And and has high validity in terms of picking the emails that you should know about versus the ones that you don't. Uh, related to that smart um, notifications feature is the smart inbox, and the way that inbox works is it essentially says it groups the, it groups your emails for you, uh, into sort of like newsletter type emails, um, other sort of notification emails coming from companies that you know are service providers you might be using, and they need to tell you about something going on versus emails from actual people related to work or personal or whatever and these smart inboxes work fantastically well I'm kind of amazed actually because I never see an email showing up in a different inbox than I thought and you know when it comes time to call through my emails and delete stuff that's in the way it's really easy to do because Spark has already categorized them for me Um, part of the reason this came to mind when when we were deciding on this topic of what we're grateful for is because Spark is just today sent out emails to beta testers and so was for the Mac version. And so I downloaded the, yeah. the beta Mac client and started using it. And I'm already excited for what it will mean. Um, yeah. So, and it's really flexible. They have smart replies. It's, 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 I think my favorite, well, it's definitely my favorite of, of all the alternative email clients out there. Um, because I've seen them do features that nobody else does. And then the features that everybody has, like the, you know swipe to carry out an action on an email i just like the way that they've implemented it so i'm i'm really excited about this mac client version of it because i, I feel like it's going to it's going to add a lot of value when i'm actually at my computer working
0: and do you have that plugged into gmail or your work
1: email or both well that's another reason i love it is because i feel like a lot of these providers show up with only half of the service uh, email services out there in terms of accessibility this mm-hmm. one out of the box you know, supports Exchange, Mac email, Gmail, obviously any other IMAP um, accounts that you might be using, and so it's really handy. I've never been a really active Gmail user, so I can't speak to how well it integrates with Gmail, but mm-hmm. like the unique Gmail features. Um, but uh, I like the way it pulls my different email addresses from my different services together. It's,
0: it's pretty handy. Hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, I use Gmail has sort of similar features to the sort of smart inbox stuff that you were talking about. So I use that to some – actually, I used to be a heavier user of that. My wife's still a big fan of that. I now have – Gmail has a different version of the inbox where it sorts it into important and not important, basically. Um, And I actually – I use that so I have my desktop Gmail set so that I see uh, all the important stuff at the top and then the less important stuff below, so it sort of splits it. Uh, which is quite nice because it means I can deal with the urgent stuff first. And then when I have time, I sort through all the newsletters and stuff like that. And if I don't deal with them, then they don't clog up the important side of things. So that's quite nice. And Great. I use uh, Outlook on, on my phone um, in much the same way. That has a sort of a priority inbox and a sort of non-priority inbox approach, which tends to filter things in pretty much the same way. So it's been interesting to, to use that there. I've also been tweaking the Mac email client over the last few days to try to replicate that a little bit, and it's it's worked fairly well. I kind of wish I could do the same thing with the Apple mail client on my phone as well, but that doesn't seem to be possible. All right, um, so the second thing I wanted to talk about was just uh, how technology is allowed us to connect as a family and particularly I'm thinking the fact that you know I'm from the UK my parents still live there and so to the extent that we want to communicate with them a lot of that communication is digital and obviously it's always been through email and stuff like that but really over the last few years FaceTime and Skype have become a much bigger part of that and certainly allows us to keep up but uh, to a lesser extent and in a less sort of uh, live and real-time way things like Instagram have really been important just for them to have a sense of Um, what's going on in our lives, really. So they see the pictures that we post, which, you know, they see pictures of our kids, which is nice for them, but they also get some sense of what we've been up to and what's important to us and so on. And so, you know, this technology has really sort of allowed us to keep up with each other, uh, even though we're busy, even though we live, you know, seven hours apart in terms of time zones and so on, uh, and thousands and thousands of miles apart. Um, it's really kind of closed that distance, which has been a great thing. So we, have used technology a great deal in that sense. And again, hard to imagine kind of what life would be like, you know, 20 years ago, we'd have the phone we might occasionally mail each other physical photographs, but, um, you know, other than when we see each other, that the connection would be a lot less meaningful. So it's another area in which I feel like technology has really, uh, changed things quite significantly for the better.
1: Yeah, that is great. I, um, so my third one, um is uh rss a really simple syndication i it's a funny thing to 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 note as something i'm grateful for but man i just love how well it works i am so glad that rss survived the death of google reader because i mean that was the way i think the vast vast majority of people used um, rss in the past i over the years i've curated you know, a, a set of news sources that and websites and blogs and everything that I really like, I've got about hundred and thirty or so that are in my feed. Um, I, I'm 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 merciless in getting rid of stuff that I feel like isn't producing high enough return on the, on the time I spend paying attention to it. But uh, yeah, it, you know, I I'm glad things worked out. I feel like Feedly has stepped up in a way that a lot of people who use RSS um, that. Are very very grateful for um, there are great clients uh, for RSS still on, on my iPhone and on my Mac I use a client called reader which is really common for a lot of Mac users it's spelled R-E-E-D-E-R um, on my iPad I actually use a different client than reader um, and it's called um, Mr. Reader but it's spelled R-E-A-D-E-R um, I really like the navigation functions of Mr. Reader and, and uh, some of the other stuff that I don't find in, the, in other clients. But, you know, I think for me the reason it makes a big difference is because it's a really easy, clean way to stay up to date on the stuff that, that matters to me as far as the news is concerned. I'm, a, I, I'm something of a news junkie, and so especially in tech news, um, but also just in national and international news. But, uh, you know, I hate having to to wade through websites to get that to get that news and so rss is just a fantastic way to to get the information i want really quickly and efficiently and and you know i can burn through an rss i can burn through you know my my unread list pretty quickly and 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 sort of glean the stuff that i care the most about so that's another thing i'm grateful for
0: yeah no that's great i i also use that quite a bit i think slightly less than i used to in the age of twitter now um, because I, I get a lot of sort of big news that comes that way and so I get it sort of indirectly almost by osmosis um, rather than having to kind of consciously go out and hunt it down in the same way that I used to but I still do uh, use RSS quite a bit and I actually use it probably more now in my personal life than I do in my work life um, because of the work stuff I tend to get through Twitter now um, but that kind of brings me on to my third and last one, which is, um, you know, I talked about connections with family just now and, and Skype and FaceTime and so on, but connections with strangers is the other the one that I'm grateful for, and, and Twitter is the main example or main enabler of that for me. Um, you know, I use Twitter an enormous amount. I have Tweetbot open on my computer all day long and, and you know, regularly check in with it and see what's going on. And um, just the connections I've been able to make um, through Twitter with people that are strangers that live in completely different parts of the world, you know, and um, I, in many cases, I've now met those people in person subsequently. You know, a lot of the time, if I go to an industry event or something, I'll bump into these people or in some cases, I've consciously planned to meet these people, uh, you know, for, for a quick cup of hot chocolate or whatever, or we're in the same town or, um, you know, go out for dinner or whatever. And it's been great to sort of establish those friendships. I feel like it's also uh, exposed me to a much wider range of different kinds of people and views and so on than I would have been exposed to. Otherwise, if I'd stuck to people I'd only ever met in person, uh, you know, in the way that you might if you just used Facebook or something like that, Um, you know, on Twitter, I find because I'm following people for something other than who they are, to some extent, I'm following them because they have interesting things to say about technology for the most part. Um, But, you know, they bring the rest of their personalities with them. And so I'm exposed to people who have very different lifestyles, who live in very different places, who have very different life experiences, um, who deal with different challenges from mine. It's been particularly interesting to see that community responding to the election results over the last couple of weeks um, because you know they're responding to it in ways that aren't necessarily applicable to me because i'm not a member of communities that they may be part of that may feel particularly threatened or in some cases may actually feel heartened by the election results so it's been interesting to see that but uh, at any rate i'm grateful for the way that twitter in particular but technology in general has allowed me to connect with strangers people i don't know in person but uh, have gone and got to know through that platform and, and in some cases who've become friends as well
1: yeah, that is an awesome thing. I've reflected before. I mean, years ago when I was doing the iMovie books with David Pogue, I reflect on the fact that we we wrote three books together and still have never met face-to-face. <laughs> and it and has that really everything. is amazing. Yeah, and it has everything to do with the Internet, you know? And it's, right. just, it's just this really cool, empowering thing, the way it can connect to total strangers. So it
0: is really neat. Yeah, yeah. And if that was... Uh out of the blue for any of our listeners that that reference to those books that's something we talked about i think probably back in the very first episode of the podcast so if you haven't listened to that you might want to go back and uh, hear more about that it's it's a very interesting uh, part of aaron's history with with technology and apple and and uh, and part of how we came to do this podcast as well so well worth a listen if you haven't listened to that episode uh, well, we'll wrap up that segment there um, and and uh, move on to our weekly pick. And we've just been sharing some stuff we're grateful for. So it's kind of the same thing. But we, Aaron has a specific recommendation as well.
1: So last Friday, my wife and I went and saw Arrival. It's still pretty new in the theaters. It's only been out for less than two weeks. Um, and it's my pick of the week. I know, Yen, you're, you're normally the one who recommends movies. But, uh... <laughs> that's right. Stop, stop treading on my toes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I absolutely loved it, I, in fact I can't think of a time I enjoyed a movie in the theater quite as much as this one. I, I'm, I, I like the movie theater experience but I, I'm pretty passive about it, I don't feel super anxious to see blockbusters in the theater for example, I'm, and, that, and, and I can be patient just you know, waiting for them to show up. Uh, Arrival was a movie that I would heard so many good reviews about I just felt like I couldn't pass up seeing it in the theater and I'm, I'm so glad I did. You know I think it's it's so if you're not familiar with the movie I, I can't say too much because I don't want to give anything away um, but it's essentially a science fiction movie there are these mysterious uh, spaceships hovering around the earth and and Amy Adams uh, who plays the lead as a is a linguist who has to help figure out how to talk to these things, um, talk to the aliens that, that, are, that, are, that have come to Earth. Um, I don't want to give anything more away, but I do want to compliment a few things about the movie that I really enjoyed. Visually, it's stunning. Um, you know, I, the, my, my, my big frustration about blockbusters these days, especially the action movies like the Marvel ones, is you feel like the whole movie was probably shot in a green screen studio. And uh, that is not at all the case for this, although obviously there's a lot of green screen, um, you know, special effects, just like there are in any movie these days. But, but there were a lot of really fantastic and beautiful landscapes that were shot. They did a good job making it visually really compelling. Um, another thing I loved was the music. Um, it was a really unique science fiction uh, music score, which is hard to do these days because it feels like so much has already been done. Um, but the music was really engrossing and a very powerful part of the movie and then uh, finally i loved the message and i can't speak to it because i don't want to mess i don't want to mess up for for those who haven't seen it yet but you know there's there's the science fiction storyline but then there's another storyline about just being a human and being a person Mm -hmm. living life and and that is, in my opinion, the much more powerful message, and I think, in fact, the intended message. So the point that that it's a, it's a funny thing because I, I, I think science fiction was just the medium for conveying this much more expansive and and powerful uh, uh, lesson. And yet uh, I think you could I think you could come away watching the movie not appreciating that because the science fiction part of the story is so well done. Right, and so. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a much more artistic science fiction movie than I've grown accustomed to seeing in new releases these days and artistic in the way that 2001 a Space Odyssey was artistic or, or, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or any of the others, or Blade Runner, all these old science fiction movies that have really endured that, uh, you know, have, have maintained such a prominent place in, uh, you know, in, in pop culture and everything else, they, they succeeded because they were unique and they're beautiful. And I, I think arrival has a chance. I don't want to speak too soon. Cause you know, a year from now, who knows if people remember it, but, but, uh, but it, but it was beautiful in the way to me, those other movies were and artistic in the way those other movies were. And so I hope it has a lot of enduring value. The casting was great and the acting was great. So yeah. So if you haven't seen arrival, catch it in the theaters because you'll be glad you did.
0: Great. Thanks, Aaron. And thank you to our listeners as well for being with us again. If you're in the US, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Hope you have a great week. And for those of you in the rest of the world, we hope you have a great week too. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.